0: Hi, my name is Brian Cook, and I beat the often path by making sure our team is
1: ready to rock day in and day out. Welcome back to the Beat the Off in Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. This is the show where we seek out people who are actually solving the many problems facing our species and, you know, celebrate them because we need to. Joining me today is Brian Cook, the president of Local Bounty, a company that brings fresh local produce to the world using 90% less water and land than traditional agriculture. In a world that is poised to hit 10 billion people not too long from now, we need all the help that we can get finding innovative ways to feed our population food that isn't mushy gruel or, God forbid, soylent green. Brian has dedicated his life to food production, and today we talk about not only what Local Bounty is doing and why it's important, but also how we all need to educate ourselves better about where our food actually comes from. It's a topic that is near and dear to my heart, so here's Brian Cook of Local Bounty. Well, Brian, I want you to, to let you know something. I prepared for this taping by sleeping standing up because I've been told that stacking and vertical and all of that stuff is better. Did I do the right thing?
0: Yeah, you know, I think you need to sleep standing up and uh, sleeping sideways. You know, there, you, you need a little bit of everything, and you'll get that a little bit with within our
1: mission today. A little bit of both. Okay, good, because I noticed there's a few different images to talk about. So briefly summarize at the outset of this, what is the company, what's the mission, what do you do, and why should people care about any of it?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a great, uh, great question to ask. And I think some of it you have to go back to the beginning and, and where it all started. So uh, we had co-founders Craig Herbert and Travis Joyner, and they were out looking for uh, a company to invest in. Um, they spent a lot of time in the private equity space um, looking at energy companies and they came, kind of fell into this idea of controlled environment agriculture. And uh, through that process, they looked at both vertical and horizontal spaces, which horizontal we would call greenhouses. And that's kind of why I tell you that, you know, you sleep standing up and you sleep laying down. Um, Because what we found as part of that process was if you look at the benefits of each of those independently, the true magic really comes when you combine those two together. Um, And that's where we uh, lead with our uh, patent pending stack and flow technology.
1: Stack-and-flow technology, right? That's what it's called. Okay, so how many years ago did these guys come together with this idea?
0: Yeah, they, they've been around and friends for, for quite a long time um, and but it was 2018 when they de- finally decided to put local bounty to work. Uh, they knew each other for more than a decade prior to that, uh, became good friends and uh, really complimented each other. So, you know, when you think about the yin and yang from a co-CEO role, they really had that in spades and um, has really took the company from an idea to really maximizing the ability to, to uh, take this to the next level. Um, and as you'll see, you know, they've been able to do that in a number of ways. Uh, the stack and flow technology that we're doing um, is, has gotten fine-tuned over the years, and it's gotten to a spot where they were able to uh, make an investment in the company that I actually came over to the company with, which was Helania Produce Pete's which was a uh, grower that's been in the space since 1970, really focusing in the lettuce market since 1995. And so what we're able to do is take uh, assets that would typically be something that you're just providing lettuce day in and day out and really supercharging it by taking uh, our stack phase and bolting onto it, which is our vertical farming.
1: So was that where the idea came to do lettuce and this kind of produce? Because obviously, you could grow pretty much anything. It seems like so. How was this crop or these types of crops settled on as the actual product that you wanted to do?
0: Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. Because um, as you know, when you look at the controlled environment agriculture or greenhouse growing in general, you know it goes all, everything from uh, tomatoes, which is where it you know really kind of got its really first big birth, and then into into the lettuce market. And, um, you know, it's a growing area, whereas tomatoes has been around and doing that for quite some time. Lettuce is kind of like that next generation that let's call it the 2.0 version of how CEA could take a bigger role in the full agricultural atmosphere. Uh, And so I think that's why we really uh, moved into um, the leafy green
1: segment full on. Interesting. Well, I have to let you know that uh, I didn't disclose this to your partner before this interview, but we are a bit of adversaries here because I'm a fan of wasting as much water as humanly possible. I like playing golf in (laughs) Palm Springs. So I just like dumping out water, gallon out, thousands of millions of gallons. That's what I enjoy doing. So I think I might not agree with your methods. Think of it as this way. We'll, We'll
0: save the water so that you could waste the water.
1: Okay, so how much water will you save? Because I burn through a lot.
0: Yeah, so um, when you think about uh, greenhouse growing versus traditional farming, um, it's been known to save 90% less water and land. So not only uh, do you save on the water to, uh, for, for your golf courses, but you're also going to be able to be out there
1: and uh, building maybe a, another 18 uh, with the land that will save. And I'm sure they're on it right now. They're like, excellent, let's go. (laughs) Uh, Okay, 90%. That seems like a big number. And I see these kinds of things. Obviously, I'm interested in this sort of tech. And when we talk about comparing to traditional farming, is anybody still doing it that way? Does anybody still use traditional farming in this industry? Or are those just old methods that nobody really does?
0: Yeah, no, Ross, you're definitely seeing a transition more and more over into controlled environment ag. But, you know, there are items that are are just really set for, you know, the traditional farming. You know, you think of things like bananas or anything on a tree, you know, it, it's going to take a while for, um, you know, that just economically to make sense. Um, so you, what you'll see over the course of the next decade um, and, you know, and, and on from there is a transition from more and more crops going from outside to inside, as it makes sense, um, for at, at, at the end of the day, the consumer, right? Because, you know, we're doing this for a lot of different reasons, but at the forefront of it is we need to get consumer fresh, flavorful products at an approachable price and that, you know, and we're doing everything we can in that, but it's not going to happen with everything overnight. So we're really focusing on which items we can do that with. And obviously lettuce
1: is one of those main items the main item yes that's correct that's correct right. yes so your previous company you said since 1970 produce Pete's. Uh, was that something that you were always interested in were you always interested in agriculture how did you personally end up here
0: yeah so i actually joined um Pete's in 2016 but the family had been uh came over from holland Um, And Pete was actually the son of the original founder, Art, um, and his wife, Magda Overgog, And um, so they started off and they traditionally did flowers. Um, And then in 85, went into tomatoes and cucumbers, which then ultimately led to full-on lettuce production um, in the mid-90s. And uh, it's always been in their blood. Uh, you know, the Magda's parents uh, were farmers, Art's parents were farmers. And so it was just kind of a, you know, a family tradition. Um, and that tradition kind of developed into, you know, our, the, at that point in time, Hollandia Produce, Pete's family, um, where Pete, you know, and that's how we, he treated everyone. Um, And then in 2016, we became an ESOP, so it was an employee stock ownership program, um, before us being um, bought out by Local Bounty.
1: Okay. So are you personally interested in matters of sustainability, or is this something that you just sort of fell into?
0: Yeah, so I've always been looking for... um, you know kind of the next best thing and and i'll give you an example of that so in my i've always been in produce to some degree um and before coming over to Hollandia produce i was with a company called San miguel produce and we did um, dark leafy greens in the field um, and so what was the trend that was back then was um, the whole kale boom. So you may remember the kale boom of 2010. <laughs> uh, yes, the yeah. kale
1: years, the kale wars of 2010.
0: Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of really what what excited me about that move over is you saw some really excitement about being able to do something different, and it was beneficial to to consumers. You know, you know, there's something to be said about you know providing that healthy eating experience to all and so towards my time there you know this whole new cea thing that's just been around for quite some time was really kind of gaining traction over and beyond the tomato base that it was that it was known for um and you know as i looked at it personally um you know i was like oh wow this has a lot of great benefits to it beyond just the dollars and cents right so if you look at it all of the environmental uh background Um, you know, the, the social piece of it. And I, and I'll, and I'll explain in, in, in those areas. So if you think about traditional farming, it's a tough job to do, and it's an aging labor force, right? So you just see the more and more you see the, um, the facts that come out of that, the data that comes out of that is that, you know, the workforce is getting older and older and the job's getting harder and harder. And, you know, our, 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 um, you know, our peers over there in the traditional farming—they're doing everything they can. You know, they—they really do work hard um, on the sustainability front. But um, what we're being able to provide is an environment where the—you know—the product is more automated, it's more mechanized. Everything's done at a—you know—waste level. So you know, you talk about you know the overall health benefits of it from the, your your team members that are working day in and day out. Um, you know all of that kind of plays into you know the kind of the overall sexiness of controlled environment agriculture uh, you know you take about it environmentally you know it's not just the land and water but right now most of the farming is done in california and we hear this day in and day out there's no surprise there but you know i think when where it really hits people is when they start looking up the greenhouse gas emissions the what it takes to get from field to processing from processing to distribution center, from distribution center to consumer's mouths. There's not only a lot of time here, but there's a lot of movement. And so bringing a, um, uh, the ability to bring growing closer to consumption, I mean, it really drives some, um, some excellent benefits on the environmental front.
1: Well, you know what? why the farmers are aging and why it's that they're not skillful enough because they grow food and they sustain our entire population and sure, that's fine, I guess. Sort of. Uh but what they can't do is short form dances on TikTok. So how skilled are they really? <laughs> you know, I'm
0: not much of a TikToker, so <laughs> See, that's what, what I'm saying.
1: That's why farmers are, are failing because they spend all of their time trying to grow food, but that's not important <laughs> in the new economy. See, in the future people won't need to eat, so farming will not be very important. Um but I'm a trend spotter, so I see these coming, these things coming way in advance. That's just me. Uh, and also, we yeah, should, you know, hate... Make sure you, you know, send hate...
0: me that email if you, you see the TikTok coming in, uh, growing a, pe- a head of lettuce.
1: That's well, right. I'll, I'm You've definitely in on that I want to be on the so entry. So boring, right. Although, actually, I, I say that, but, the, of course, the great irony is that if you actually posted videos of the of the actual process that you do, it would probably do very well on TikTok because they love factory videos and farming. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, so... Do you think that automation, because of course the, the standard fear from people who are in these traditional jobs is that stuff like this might take away jobs or disrupt an industry, uh, but obviously for efficiency and all the reasons you described, it's better. So how do you feel about that balance? Does it matter? Is that something sh- somebody should care about? Yeah, I, I would tell
0: folks this two things. One is that we're always hiring, so it, it's not removing any, <laughs> any jobs out there. We're always hiring. I walked and right into that one. The second benefit of it is that, you know, we're being able to hire for higher dollar jobs, you know, because we're moving a lot of, of the work to automation and mechanization it allows you to provide a a better base pay to a lot of individuals than they would typically have gotten otherwise
1: yeah so we mentioned that there's a combo of two different things sleeping vertically which is my example and then sleeping horizontally and there's some kind of patent pending some sort of technology can you please go into very specific details about what the patent is so that i can (laughs) copy it before it's granted and bring it to market first yeah, no, that that'd be
0: a hard pass. But I could give you a general overview of the uh, the high level piece of that if that's exciting to you. You'd be
1: surprised how often that works. No, please, of course. <laughs> how does the tech work?
0: Yeah, so um, basically, what um, you know, I mentioned that there was this marriage between vertical farming and and the greenhouse. Um, and so basically, what what we did is we looked at when is that time that it makes no longer sense to grow it vertically where the energy use that you put into it and the cost that goes into it and everything uh changes the game to where you know when you get to a consumer cost perspective is just no longer viable and if you take it from that standpoint and you introduce it to a greenhouse you know what is what happens to the produce then and what we learned was, is that it doesn't miss a beat. So, you know, it goes into your air, it's seeing mother nature, it's seeing the sun, it's getting all of the, the goodness that comes through the greenhouse growing um, environment. Um, and it, it is supplemented with lights as needed, but mostly it's getting everything it wants. And what you see is a sprint to the finish line so, you know, it's like getting some jazzed up. You set it on the starting line and boom, it gets to the finishing line. And so what it allows us to do was, is to do a lot more turns in a greenhouse space, you know, and there, there's multiple reasons why turning is, is a good thing. One is the less time, it's, this is a very capital intensive business. So the less time it spends in the greenhouse, the, the more you're being able to benefit the cost of those assets. Right. But it also allows you to to learn a lot Um, because as much as this business has grown, you know, there's still uh, a lot that we are doing to fine tune the program. You know, Um, we're always asking the team, hey, guys, turn the dial a little bit more. How can we get a little bit better um, with each thing that we're doing day in and day out? And we really give that to the team to um, be able to run
1: with and uh, they do some amazing work. Sure. So what is the appeal, broadly speaking, of vertical farming in general? Because the first time I was introduced to this concept was probably 2008 or 9. It was a TEDx event, and I saw somebody in the Netherlands, coincidentally enough, talking about how this could be the future of growing produce and food. How does vertical farming work, and why is it different, and why was that a breakthrough to begin with before this other half?
0: yeah you know i think it's almost the the opposite there right the greenhouse space is what's been done for 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 generations now um and what you've learned in in that space is how to to be able to take a business and work on it profitably um what it is it's a lower you know upfront cost um to do so but you never really You know, get going with anything um, extravagant. You know, it's just kind of steady eddy. Where the vertical spot came into play, it was really exciting for a number of things. One, you know, there was this whole conversation around hey, you could do this anywhere. You need a building, put a building and and develop it. Um, And so that was extremely exciting. The amount of units that you could do in such a small area was extremely exciting. Um, And those were really things that really drove excitement into it because if you think about it you know our our population is growing at a very fast rate there's not enough land to be able to to handle that amount of food that we're going to need to grow um and so thinking outside the box was just required um and so that's where a lot of um the excitement continued to happen around vertical what Mm. we started to see though is that again it gets you to a certain level and then there becomes questions on how much of that, that, that pays off, um, as far as being able to do it consistently year round, profitably enough that, you know, you're here for another five or 10 years. Um, and so, you know, that kind of rose the questions in and, and to Travis's and Craig's initial question, like, you know, these two are, you know, this is, mm, and this is, mm, but, you know what happens with that magic when we kind of put it all together, um, and so that's really what's going to be required. And uh, you know, and and we have to figure it out, right? Because I mean, you you see these numbers uh, that are coming through on the amount of food we'll need uh, in the next you know 30 years, and it's it's uh, it's a it's a big
1: task that we're that we're ready to do our part in. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Um, when you think of food and you think of cultivating food in general, I think a lot of people wouldn't see something like that as an opportunity. I think if we if we talk about a lot of farmers and what they experience, it appears that growing typical crops, let's say corn, from my limited knowledge in the subject, they get a very small amount for the food that they generate. And it's it seems to be a very tough life. So what kind of business is it operating in the food sector? How does that make any sense? Is it a very difficult industry to be a part of? Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question. Um,
0: and I'll tell you, you know, I've been in this business for 20 years and the, <laughs> the conversations I've had with some of these gentlemen who've been doing this a very long time, you know, where there, there was a time when, you know, I'll tell you, farming was super sexy. I mean, you can make a good living on it. Everything was, was, uh, great. And, and, um, but, you know, a lot of things continue to occur, you know, costs continue to grow, um, you know, the, you know, we, you, people talk about climate change in regards to where you feel on it. You know, well, one thing that we can tell is there's been extreme weather conditions we haven't seen before. Um, you know, you either you're able to talk about how much water you have, you know, when you talk about drought, you know, this is not, you know you know, someone making up numbers. These are hard in facts on, on what it is, right? Um, and all of these, and the lower water you get in, in certain areas too, it changes the water quality. Changing the water quality changes the yields. So, you know, whereas, you know, farming as we knew it traditionally had been a really great business to be in at one point in time, um, there's just been a lot of factors that have made it uh, very a lot more difficult to continue on um, and I think that's why you're seeing also this really shift towards
1: uh, controlled environment agriculture mm. and then do you think direct con- to to is the model that makes the most sense because you well I guess you don't do direct-to-consumer per se but you go to stores and intermediaries like how does it actually work
0: yeah that's correct yeah we don't go to direct-to-consumer uh, but we well you know our goal is is getting it to consumers hands in as fast as amount of you know time possible so we talked about a little bit earlier about the time it takes and the mileage that would put in in the traditional farming side you know our goal is to get it within to the market within 24 or 48 hours right and so if you think about it we're building facilities um close to consumption which means that we're being able to hit distribution centers that we would uh be selling to in a very short amount of time after harvest, um, and then they are able to get it into the stores within you know their time period, which usually equates to between 24 and 48 hours after harvest, and what that generally does is makes this a really good eating experience for the consumer, um, and it gives it some extra shelf life. Shelf life is a term that we use a lot in the food uh, business. And it's just the, the number of days the product has on it where you could still have a good eating experience. Um, and you know, if you think about how uh, produce is grown, as soon as you cut it, you know, it loses its lifeline, right? To, to the, uh, from the roots that it's using to, to keep strong. And so basically that's literally what we have um, in our hands. Whenever you're picking a piece of fruit or cutting a a lettuce off your, uh, you know, whether it's your garden or what we do uh, commercially, at some point that product is going to, it has a life with it. And so the the sooner we could get it to the stores and into consumers' hands, the longer that they have to, to eat it. And because if you look at, you know, where the food waste really is generated from, the majority of it happens You know in the consumers hands and you know and it's not that they don't want to it's just that sometimes certain products turn a lot quicker so giving them those extra amount of days in the in the cooler um, or in their refrigerator uh, really allows them to continue to be able to eat a healthy diet and not have to worry about you know the food going bad
1: yeah I do have to circle back because I feel like I have to represent some of my listeners on that last point about scientists making up numbers and data because I personally believe and we believe on this show that all scientists make up everything. Um, I believe that there's an international conspiracy that every scientist around the world has collectively gotten together to make up all of these numbers. So I just don't trust anything that a scientist says and I don't think anybody else should either. Where was I? Uh, Oh. Just kidding. But uh, anyways, no. So inputs, we're talking about health. And when I can imagine a leafy green field, as you mentioned in the past in your previous work, let's say California, you think of sun, you think of a good environment, you think of, let's say, Tuscany or these places where vegetables and leafy greens grow. Now, we're talking about health here. So how do we know that we're getting the same nutrients in this kind of product versus what would happen outside in nature, which, of course, we know only a few places on Earth can even do that?
0: Yeah, it's another good question, Ross. And we've, um, you know, the way you know that is you do the testing to see how how that differs from it. Um, You know, it's been uh, some time since we did uh, our testing, but you know, when you're first going into, you know, we did a lot of initial testing to confirm where we were at, and we didn't lose any. Um, you know, real value from a health perspective on the products that we were growing. Um, and I think a lot of that is, you know, based because we're really greenhouse oriented. So you're still getting a lot of that sun, the nutrients, you know, all basically what we're protecting it against is the extremities, right? You're, you're If it's too cold outside, you know it's whatever temperature we want it to be in the greenhouse if it's too hot outside we're able to monitor and keep it cooled down uh, so that it's a temperature that it likes because you know i don't know if you've been in a uh, lettuce field um, in yuma when it's uh, 100 degrees uh, but they don't like it very much <laughs> so you know be, having the ability to maintain um, the you know the temperatures of the greenhouse is just just it's kind of a you know The cherry on top, if you will, because we're still giving it everything that it needs from a mother nature standpoint in a lot of ways as well.
1: So then, what would those inputs be? What inputs are literally required to make this happen?
0: Yeah. So I mean, there's a general fertilizer base that that, that's being used. Um, You know, each each plant has its own uh, makeup that it it particularly enjoys to make it uh, you know the strongest. plant it could be. Uh, And that differs whether it's, you know, a head of lettuce, just a leaf of lettuce, an an herb, a tomato, Um, you know, each one has its own general needs and what makes it, um, you know, uh, the strongest plant it can be. So that's really where, you know, our our growers kind of dive into the details and make sure that, you know, they take each individual plant and are feeding it exactly what it needs to, to, you know, be as strong as it can. Can be on that finish line because that also contributes to food waste on the back end right if you don't have a strong plant or strong baby to start with you will not have a good quality product at the end and without that you know you have reduced days and uh you know and that adds to our food waste issue
1: mm-hmm. is there a difference then between the types of fertilizers that can be used is this a point that being more sustainable or not Uh, basically is one method more wasteful than another or worse for the environment are there certain types of inputs that are better both for you and for the world
0: yeah i think what what we're able to do is limit the amount of inputs that we're utilizing within the controlled environment space so you know if you go back to my days um, prior and just get you know and before that i was doing a lot of uh, fruit crops that row crops Uh, You know, you're always trying to protect the fruit and so a lot of um, inputs that are being used are very preventative in nature. Um, And so because you've got a lot going on uh, in the world of uh, the environment around you. In the controlled environment space, because you don't have to worry about those extremities, you could be far more focused on just growing. Uh, a good plant without having to worry about a lot of preventative sprays um, that you you would tend to do uh, in traditional farming. Um, so that is, you know, it's just a huge reduction uh,
1: of, of material use. Can this method be termed organic or is that a, something that just doesn't apply here?
0: Yeah, no. um, So it's not not organic necessarily, Um, you know, organic is very specific to the the using approved organic materials within the production cycle. Um, So, you know, there there is a spot like in our California facilities where we're growing organic uh, butter lettuce. And so everything that we put into that product is only uh, OMRI approved uh, materials. Um, and so that's really kind of really what you're, um, you're driving towards is, you know, if you want to, it's a different type of growing from traditional farming, but it's still farming nonetheless. And so for it to go between conventional and or organic, the, really what it comes down to is the types of inputs you put into it. And surely, yeah, you could definitely put organic inputs into our,
1: our way of growing uh, in greenhouses to make that organic. So the designation has less to do with the way that it's actually farmed, quote unquote, and more just what goes into it? Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. But it's less about okay. how it's grown and more about the, nutri- the inputs that are put into it. Mm-hmm. Interesting, so since you do both, is there a difference, and this is something I've always kind of wondered, knowing that you could choose to do whatever, is there a difference in your opinion in financial consequences for choosing to be organic? Is it tougher to be an organic product? Mm. Versus a non-organic product, why would anybody choose to not be an organic product? I mean, these are questions that I think a lot of people might have asked at one point.
0: Yeah, you know, and maybe I'm going to even take that a step back to our my brothers and sisters in the traditional farming world because uh, you know, growing organic is a tough job, especially within that. I mean, because you're really trying to develop your your soil blend. You're really having to be focused on the product. You don't have um, a lot of you know these heavy sprays that conventional farming folks have and um and you know so you're it is really an art what uh organic growers are doing out there um within that you know within that realm of organics but when you get into the cea space it's it's equally more cost you know i would not say equally it is definitely more cost uh it costs a lot more to do organics than it would be, you know, traditional conventional farming within the CEA space as well.
1: Hmm. And yeah, because that I've just heard has so to do many... with the overall cost of the, of, of the right. materials used in that process. And then in the end, whether that costs $8 for a head of lettuce for the end consumers or less, um, But of course, you know, at this point, we've heard so much information and misinformation on these topics from so many sources, people who say there's no difference. I mean, there's a lot of people who say there's no difference in quality between an organic and a non-organic product. There's other people who say that that's absurd. There is a belief that there's a big difference in these farming practices. But then there's other people who will tell you that that's a lie, that the organic stamp doesn't really mean much or that somebody can technically be organic without really adhering to the spirit that people think. You know, it's like, oh, if we just put this tiny little door for our chickens, we can call it organic. It's just, do you think that that's true or does the organic label actually mean something? I think the organic label actually means something. I mean, people are working hard
0: to make sure that they're checking all the necessary boxes um, to assure that the that there's integrity within, within the organic space. So, you know, I, I hear that and it just, you know, it upsets me to no other just because I know how much work is put into making sure this happens. Now, you know, that's not to say that, you know, people hear this one story about this one grower who did it this one way, this one time. And you know, that becomes the focal point of the conversation and you know, there's bad bad eggs in it, you know, in every basket. Though I think in today's economy, people might just eat bad eggs anyways, just to because uh, they cost so much. But <laughs> to save a couple bucks, exactly. Right? That's a whole different
1: topic, right? We could get into eggs on one of these episodes. <laughs> yeah,
0: but, but really, uh, I mean, it's just you know there you know there are in in ninety nine point nine percent of this world, people are just driving really hard to do really good work around the organic space, and I I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the, the label. Um, the USDA organic label, I think they do a great job.
1: Well that's really comforting to know and I think the moral of the story is that generally farmers and the people who are responsible for producing all of our food, I think by and large they do care and if there are people who are cutting corners, let's say, it's probably the byproduct of some other pressure that's outside of their control. I generally have incredible faith in farmers and the people who are actually making the food again because we need to support them. And it's, it's not something that should be, should be marginalized. So I'm very comforted to know that it does mean something and that these people really care. That said, is it possible, do you think, to feed 8 billion, 9 billion, 10 billion people via organic means only? Or is that simply not possible?
0: Yeah, it, you know, this was, uh, in my past life, a big conversation that we had day in and day out and you know there's a lot of work that goes into you know again being organic there's the the time it takes to get the soil prepped um you know without getting too much down the rabbit hole this way i'll sum it up very quickly in saying that we've got not just uh an issue with with you know organic versus conventional we have an issue with water and land so even if we were able to do it, there's probably not enough land, even if you switched it all to organic, to be able to satisfy that need. I don't think there's enough land in this world that's good, farmable land to be able to do it conventional farming. I mean, that's why I jumped in the deep end of this CEA program for me and from a personal standpoint, because I firmly believe that this is a requirement to be able to satisfy those numbers you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. And we need to do it right. And we need to do it in a way that this company stands for long term. And so that's why we really focus on our unit economics uh, and really driving, um, you know, operational excellence and successes and and all things. You have to, because if we don't get it right in the CEA world, we're in for a very, very long and sad road ahead of us because I don't see it happening any other way.
1: Mm. Well, that actually brings up another good point. So are you then optimistic or pessimistic about the future in general? Do you feel like we're heading on a good path in general when it comes to farming and satisfying that need or do you see major concerns?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think we're heading in a, in a good, uh, we're heading in a better way than we were, you know. and I think each year there's an acknowledgement around Um, the need for a better way of growing Uh, there's acknowledgement around the climate change that is happening there's acknowledgement around the reduction of of materials of raw materials and resources that are ready there's you know a, a lot of this even folks who never believed in it before Are starting to realize that okay, there's only so much you could (laughs) times you could say that this isn't factual before you know you have to jump on you know and and and, you know we we have a funny kind of conversation within our our produce world you know because you know when when we came to town as a CEA grower we were kind of cast off as a ah that's cute right type of environment but now and more and more you're seeing long standing traditional farmers making bets within our space. And that tells you all you need to know right there, in my opinion, is that when you know, when you see those who are most affected by it putting bets in what, you know, once was thought of as a niche program, you start realizing that the, the tailwinds that are happening within our space. Um, and the best part about it is that perfecting this we're being able to really make this kind of a module approach where we could take this and we could go anywhere in the world uh, and be able to provide good, healthy produce to, to folks nationwide or worldwide. You know, that, to me, that's that's exciting. <laughs> I
1: mean, there's just no, no other way of saying it, it is super exciting. It it is exciting. And the concept of local, I think it's also become a conversation the last 5, 10 years about just how far food is being transported, the transportation costs in general, which nobody ever thought of. It's like you get a banana, but by the time you factor it all in, it's, it's insane for it to appear on your local shelf. So the idea of local is good. And I think another thing that I'm always very interested in is how We, and I think this might be a United States thing because we have all these separate states with their separate opinion. We have this illusion of separation on these issues. And one of the things that I really love as a California resident is the way that so many other states really malign the state of California. If, If California is running out of water or California has a drought, there's almost a shame on you, screw you, California. That's not me in Michigan kind of attitude. But of course, the reality is that that water is going out of California every single day in the form of millions of pounds of food that is going to all of these other places. So it's not like we're completely disconnected from each other. And even though we have states boundaries, we are all one when it comes to stuff like food and production and arable land and all of that. So. What do you think it will take for more people to kind of realize the interconnectedness of our food ecosystem if we're going to make it the next hundred years as a species? Yeah,
0: you know, the, the word that jumps into my mind as you asked that question was open mindedness. And so I think a lot of that has to be self driven. But what I what I see happens a lot of times and you kind of said this at the beginning is, this, is that there's this us versus them mentality without really looking at things holistically. Mm. And that's where the true beauty and the r- true realize real reality lies is in this holistic approach to it. So yes, you know, this may be it on step one, but play that all the way through. And is the benefit here outweigh the negative here because nothing's perfect and nothing's, you know, uh, you know, not everything's gonna go away, and the you know this thing, you know, utilizing water. There's 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 never gonna be a spot where, well, maybe there would be sometime in the way way future where you know you're growing produce without water. I mean, I just you know it's needed to do it, and so you know I think what it comes down to really is how much pounds of product are you producing per gallon of water? How many pounds of produce are you producing per you know gas usage and per electricity? Per all these things that we are seeing becoming more of a challenge, how we, can we do more with each unit that we use? And I think that's really where, you know the, as a group, we need to align ourselves on and say, this is the best way, let's go.
1: Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself, and I think you're right about the holistic approach. That is something that our world needs more in general just across the board and understanding of if you weigh all of the pros and cons. Very rarely, if ever in life, does it seem that things are as simple as A or B or A is better than B. A might be better than B for certain reasons in certain situations. But I think if we take the totality of all of this, we will we'll have to make some kinds of trade-offs. You know, is is it better to use less water but slightly worse inputs, for example, or is it better to do it this way, but use more water? And to even have the conversations that we need to be having people have to educate themselves or be educated about what the actual consequences of each different path are right otherwise you don't really know because it'd be very easy for me to say everything should be organic all the time and of course that would be my personal preference i would say i wish only every human being in the world only had organic but then it just simply may not be possible to do that and we have to make progress as a species anyways So I'm very much in agreement with you there that, uh, that we got to take it all into account if we're going to make smart decisions. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So now that you're in this, uh, for, you know, a very long time in your own personal career, is this something that you see yourself being a part of for the next 10, 20 years? Do you always want to exist in the food space personally?
0: Oh, yeah. Most definitely. You know, I, I mentioned people on the onset, you know, there I I've spent a lot of time in produce, but I've had fingers in, in, in a lot of other businesses. And, you know, I don't want to say that our people are better than yours, because that would just be wrong. But, you know, there is just... Great salt of the earth people who work in our business, and that's everything you know from from every level within the organization. Um, and it's amazing to see because when you hire the right people, you can you know because they're doing it for the right reason. They 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 know like I am growing this so that I could take this home and feed my children and. Yeah. You know, when you have that kind of uh, passion behind you, it's amazing, you know, the work that that our team does day in and day out. And, you know, I don't think we would be any close to the success we've had to date and and more so the success that we have coming in the future. Because these guys are working hard day in and day out and and making a lot of good moves. And I'm I'm really excited about the future. Um, And
1: so with that, yeah, I'd love to be part of it for the next 10 to 20 years. God willing. Nice. You know, I'm a quarter Italian, so I believe that food is love. Do you believe that? I definitely believe food is love. Yes. Yeah. Uh, All right. So for the uneducated out there, the people who never really thought twice before buying a head of lettuce or something like that in the grocery store, what is one thing that you wish everybody just knew in general about the industry, about the process? Just one thing that you feel like nobody really knows. That's a that's a great question
0: um the first thing that comes to mind is the amount of work that goes into bringing that to market um i think there's this you know you know (laughs) quick quick little story but i was talking to somebody one point and they were talking about how they were in a class and they were asking folks and i don't remember if they were literally in it or if they saw a video on this but however it it culminated that the the question was brought to a child like hey you know where is lettuce ground they are like the supermarket you right. know? <laughs> and uh, you know what you know that's cute in of itself but the reality is is that there's a lot of folks who I don't think have full appreciation for what it takes to get food to market um, and I'd really love for for consumers to you know take that ride you know understand what it takes to get there and all the challenges
1: and you know the blood sweat and tears that goes into it. I completely agree. And you know, when we do these episodes, we tape it, of course, and we do a bit of an edit and there's the full episode that goes on the podcast platform. that Everybody can listen for the detail and the nuance. But of course, we do social chops to promote it. And I did an entire episode with a woman who's making cultivated fish, one of the ones you might have seen lab grown fish in Asia. And mm-hmm. the whole point is that if we continue along this path, we'll run out of fish in 2050 not that far away in commercial fishing because it's just from the ocean it's not sustainable this practice and of course we did a little chop chop for the teaser and one of the comments on youtube is bro just go out and catch more fish why is that so hard it's like uh, yeah think think you kind of missed the point on that it, one but yeah. <laughs> you know maybe go back and try again but it's Just sometimes the level and I don't know who's to blame, but the level or the lack of knowledge is sort of shocking sometimes to me or like where food actually comes from. It's just this package on the grocery store. I just buy it. And like even in COVID, we saw that that's not a guarantee for the first time you go into a grocery store and the shelves are empty. What happens then? We've gotten a small taste of what that looks like, and other countries have experienced that to a much higher degree. But if there's nothing on the grocery store shelf, what are you going to do at that point?
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that's, let's hope that it doesn't get to that point yeah. before people realize the importance of it all, right? Right. Hey, I had one idea about um, the, the, the folks that left that comment, though. Maybe we needed, to your point earlier,
1: we need to do better TikTok videos that explain yes. it. I think that's clearly the thing. Um, We've got to get on that, I'm telling you. See, I think, you know, we talk about in the future, you might be able to grow produce without water. Well, I think in the future, our entire economy will be based on TikTok videos. See, I I think that the reason that physics haven't changed is because nobody's gotten to a trillion followers. My prediction is that when the first person gets to a trillion followers, then physics will change. So I foresee a future where 99.99% of all people are TikTok influencers. There are no farmers. There are no mechanics. There are no builders. There's no doctors. Every child should just focus on being an influencer. That's that's my genuine belief. It's, it, we just have to go that path, um, and we have to disrespect all of the farmers along the way and really make them feel bad about their life choices. That's that's the oh, part my. two of my plan, you know. Oh, my so God. That's we'll just, chop that that's one out. You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like, what a world. What did I agree to? No, but I, I really well, thank man. you, Brian. I thank you for what you're doing and for your passion and for shedding some light on all of the passionate and good people out there. Uh, that's always a great message. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this show. And I'd like you to close it out by if you could uh, yeah, promote yourself or the brand or you know direct people to whatever end you'd like, and then we'll wrap this one up. Yeah, no. Thanks, Ross, for,
0: for having me on. It was it was a lot of fun and uh, we love uh giving people a little bit more insight on what we're doing day in and day out. Um, you know, please follow us at localbounty.com uh, and follow us on all of our social channels. Uh, we'll try to do better, uh, tick videos. Um, maybe an influencers yeah, in my send future, it there. Yep. future, who knows, but, um, that's right. Uh, with that, man, I'll just t- tell you and your, uh, your, your podcast listeners, you know, when you're out there, be a light to others and
1: God bless you guys. Well, that is a wonderful sentiment. And just for clarity, it's Bounty with an I, B-O-U-N. <S-T-A-Y. S-T-A-Y. S-T-A-Y> Local Bounty with an I. Check it out. A lot of cool things with the business. Also 1% for the planet. A lot of great stuff, structure. Um, it's a really cool thing. Keep up the hard work. And I look forward to seeing what the future brings. And so Appreciate thanks again. Us. And with that, the official podcast is over. over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Off and Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it, To help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.